0: Section 22 of *Prince and Heretic*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *Prince and Heretic* by Marjorie Bowen. The banquet. Twice more in the ensuing days did Brederode and his following present themselves at the Brabant palace. The first time to receive the petition, which was returned to them with Margaret's answer. Madame Parma, as usual, referred everything to the king. The petition should be forwarded to his majesty, from whose well-known clemency there was everything to be hoped. As for herself, she had no authority to suspend the inquisition, nor the edicts, but she would give orders to the inquisitors to behave with discretion. Meanwhile, she adjured the petitioners to act as men loyal to the king and church. Brederode's third audience was for the purpose of answering this not very satisfactory concession. He urged the regent to cease all religious persecution until the decision of the king arrived, to which her highness replied she could not go beyond her former answer, but that Count Hoogstraton should show them the instructions to the inquisitors, commanding them to moderation. There was nothing more to be obtained from Madame Parma and the confederates separated with such hopes as they were able to cherish, and such expectations of the good results of Margaret's letter to the king as their knowledge of Philip allowed them to entertain. The evening of the day that Brederode had been for the last time to the Brabant palace, the Prince of Orange was dining with Mansfield, who was sick with an inflamed eye. His companions were Egmont and Horn and the four nobles discussed with gloom and foreboding the situation which Brederode and his fellow petitioners had taken with such reckless gaiety. Egmont was the most uneasy of all. The memory of his late visit to Spain, and how deftly Philip had twisted him to his will, still rankled in his mind. He had seen that the king had not kept one of the lavish promises he had made. Yet the Count, though conscious of being fooled, he had utterly refused to go again to Madrid, yet could not wholly disbelieve in Philip, nor bring himself to any action that might seem disloyal to his majesty. He had refused to associate himself in any way with Brederode's party, and he was one of the few stadholders who obeyed Philip by using his civil authority to enforce the decrees of the Inquisition. Yet he, he saw as well as any man the utter ruin to which Philip's policy was bringing the Netherlands. His Brussels palace was full of refugee heretics, and he was still regarded by the people as their hero and their possible champion. He even ventured now to predict possible concession as the result of the forwarding of the request or petition to Philip. William glanced at him now with smiling eyes in a manner that brought the blood to Egmont's cheek. "'You speak against your own wit,' remarked the prince quietly. "'You know that the king will not be moved from his purpose by the petition of these young men led by such as Brederode.' "'It were better for all,' interposed Count Horn sourly, "'if Brederode had kept out of politics.' "'Politics?' smiled William. "'Poor Brederode knows little of politics. "'But he is brave and loyal, Count. "'I can conceive good uses for Brederode.' "'His present uses,' said Egmont bitterly, "'seem to be to embroil us all. "'You know of this banquet tonight?' "'Yes,' answered Mansfeld bitterly. "'My son is there.' i would to god he were elsewhere there will be much treason talked said horn and a bread road and wine is no better than a madman william glanced at the clock in the corner we are almost due at the council chamber he said rising you work late remarked mansfeld and to little purpose said horn gloomily pulling at his black beard eh prince to little purpose truly said william gravely the affairs of the netherlands are settled in philip's cabinet in madrid not in the council chamber at brussels he smiled to himself thoughtfully and picked up his long velvet mantle from one of the brocade chairs we will go round by the horse market he added and see how this banquet progresses nay i beseech you said mansfeld eagerly keep away from all such dangerous sport not sport nor pleasure replied the prince but hoogstarten is there and i would bring him away and if the company is riotous i will disperse them he added, with a sure and entirely unconscious certainty of power. Mansfeld shrugged his shoulders. His inflamed and bandaged eye irritated him, and he was deeply vexed at his son's connection with the Confederates. This is an affair well enough for boys," he returned peevishly. "Boys and roysters, but the Regent's councillors had best keep away. William knew perfectly well that Brederode's banquet was likely to be, and how it would be regarded by the government. He knew also that Stratton had also persuaded to attend against his will, and wished to save him from too deep an implication in the riots in which the feast would undoubtedly end. Nor was William without some kindly feeling for Brederode and a desire to check him in his dangerous recklessness. Hoorn disliked Brederode, but he would gladly have done a service to the gallant Hoogstraden, and Egmont was always eager to curb any display against the government. So the three nobles, on taking leave of Mansfeld, set out towards the Kuhlenberg Palace, where Brederode held his dangerous feast. They had no sooner dismounted and crossed the courtyard of the mansion than the tumultuous uproar that reached their ears more than justified their apprehensions. The banquet of the Confederates had indeed degenerated into a riot and an orgy. An argument had been raised as to what name the party, now so loosely designated, was to be called at the height of the discussion Brederode had sprung to his feet and related what Barleymont mont had said when they first came into the presence of madame parma what is your highness afraid of these beggars people of little power who cannot manage their own estates when this sarcasm of one of their greatest enemies was repeated to them the company inflamed with wine were strung up to a fever pitch of fury at the insult which had been offered them all gentlemen of rank and noble blood bread seized the moment taking a leathern wallet and a wooden bowl from one of his pages he held them aloft over the glittering feast very well he cried they call us beggars we will make them fear that word we will contend against the inquisition and be loyal to the king until we are beggars indeed he then filled the bowl with wine and drained it to the health of the beggars The party name was received with mad enthusiasm. It took the humor of all present amid yells of approval and shouts of applause. The wooden bowl was handed from one to another, and each drank the new party name. When the circuit of the table had been completed, the bowl and wallet were fastened to one of the pillars which supported the ceiling, and the rites by which the petitioners received their new name were concluded by each member of the company hurling some salt and bread into his goblet and repeating two lines of doggerel. Which some one's heated wits had instantly produced par le sang par le pan par la le se, this ceremony was at the height of unrestrained and reckless merriment, furious and unlimited enthusiasm when the three nobles entered the banqueting hall. It was a wild and gorgeous sight on which they looked, a sight all of them would rather not have beheld. It was the chamber in which Francis Junius had preached to a group of young Protestant nobles on Alexander of Parmas wedding day, but it was more suited to the present scene of unlicensed revelry than it had been to that of sincere and ardent gathering. The ceiling and the upper portion of the walls had been painted by an Italian artist in the precise and airy style of decoration which adorned the Roman palaces, delicate scrollwork, arbesques, birds, and animals interwoven wonderfully on a ground of deep blue and burnished gold. The lower parts of the walls were hung with tapestry of arras on brass rods, each panel representing a scene in the life of Jason, and between the tapestries were pillars with candles, scones, in heavy copper and brass, fashioned as flowers and figures, which lit the vast apartment, which was almost entirely occupied by an immense table at which three hundred gentlemen were seated at either end of the room each side of the folding doors stood buffets still loaded with fruit sweets and wines and attended by pages round the wall at intervals stood the servants in groups of twos and threes the table itself was lit by a huge lamp of rock crystal supported by four flying harpies half gold and half silver with wings and tails shining in red enamel this magnificent light illuminated the whole table and left in shadow only the extreme center where stood a gorgeous piece of confectionery the master effort of count kullenberg's cook representing the confederacy entering the gates of the brebent palace the little figures each of which was a portrait being molded out of sugar cunningly colored and adorned with cuttings of candied fruits this on the huge raised comport of embossed gold was untouched but for the rest the table was in the wildest disorder almost every third of the cloth of brussels lace was stained with wine gold goblets crystal beakers dishes of fruit of cakes of sweetmeats were scattered right and left at one end two young men were dancing on the table clinging to each other while their unsteady feet knocked over the glasses and plates several had mounted on the backs of their chairs and sat with their feet on the table edge while they shouted at the top of their voices Others, their caps turned inside out, and their doublets, torn open, danced about the room, vowing eternal friendship to each other and eternal fidelity to the party. A few retained their places at the table, and, with beakers at their lips, pledged again and again the party of the beggars. Most of them had baptized a neighbor into the confederacy by pouring wine over his shoulders and head, so that flushed faces, rich clothed, and tumbled locks alike dripped red. The whole scene seemed colored red, the bright red of wine sparkling over gold. At the head of the table sat Count road his doublet of scarlet velvet was covered with a network of fine gold strung with pearls. Every thread of his ruff was gold. It came up to his ears and was scattered with brilliance. From his shoulders hung a short mantle of silver cloth lined with white fur. He leant his elbow on the table. And clasped between his jeweled hands a gold goblet carved with grapes and vine leaves as he emptied it the page at his elbow refilled it the wine splashed down his ruff his doublet and his sleeves he laughed long and merrily and now and then shouted at the top of his powerful voice par le Sar, par le pan par le besage le goût ne changeant quoi qu'une se fâche le roi le le such was the scene that met the eyes of William and his companions as they entered the Kullinburg banqueting hall. The prince said nothing, but glanced to where Stratton sat, half-vexed, half-amused, near his host, whom he was endeavoring to restrain. Egmont uttered an exclamation of annoyance and dismay. Horn frowned bitterly and darted a look of contempt from under his heavy brows at the laughing Count Brederode as soon as the three great nobles the most powerful grandees in the kingdom were recognized they were hailed with shouts of welcome and surrounded by a crowd of intoxicated youngsters who took their presence as a good augury for the newly named party no no said the prince putting aside the beakers that were being forced upon him i have come but for the length of a miser we are here for the Signor hoogstratten that nobleman rose glad of an excuse to retire, and Bread road turning, saw the three newcomers. Ah, Highness, he cried, staggering to his feet, will you not come and drink the health of the beggars? Be seated here on my right. Then looking at Hurne, with whom he had recently quarrelled, he added, And the Admiral also, I did not look to see your sober face at any feast of mine, Count Horn. At this taunt, the Admiral who had been glancing at the Saturnina with genuine disgust and sincere vexation, flushed to his bald head and fixed his dark eyes menacingly on the speaker. "'I have come to save a better man than you, Count Brederode, he answered, "'from the consequences of your folly. "'Folly? Is it not more than folly? Is it not near madness and treason?' The dark blue eyes of Brederod blazed. Think your own caution will save you, Count Horn. I tell you, Philip will spare you as little as you will spare any man in this room, and the Granville holds you as damned as any heretic who ever ate a sausage on a good Friday. The sinister truth of these rude words made Egmont blench, but the admiral received them with gloomy scorn. He felt quite secure in his own loyalty. William assailed by cries of "Long live the beggaries," the meaning of which was utterly unknown to him made his way through the revelers to where bread road stood the sight of the well-known slender figure the commonest face the air of authority the men's attraction and power the prince possessed sobered the reckless young nobles the two dancing on the table were pulled down those seated were dragged to their feet the uproarious shouting was partly hushed by heaven this goes too far count said william in a low voice the reckless things you have said to-night you will forget to-morrow when you have slept off your wine but there are those who will not forget. Spies, muttered Bread road spies. Among these stupid seeming lackeys, maybe, replied the Prince dryly. Why, man, you are not a fool. You know the score of spies everywhere. I care not, said Bretterode, with a certain grandeur in his recklessness. Why should we cringe to Spain certain wrath? Nothing could bring us into favour at Madrid. Let us then defy monk and Spaniard and prove we can defend our own defiance of spain given in this manner will be short-lived answered the prince do you think you serve the netherlands this way so you only gain laughter let them laugh returned the count when the time comes they shall see i can fight as well as i can feast and he was seizing his replenished bowl with the toast damnation to the inquisition and the spaniards forming on his lips when william sternly took the wine from him and turned it on the floor sending the beaker after it to the persian rug End this, Brederode!" he commanded, and his eyes shone dark with anger. This is not a pot house; there are some high interests in our several keepings. For the sake of these reckless boys you have brought here to night, stop before you endanger all beyond help. Oh, Brederode!" he added, with a sudden smile, "go to bed, for you are very drunk." Brederode stared at him, suddenly laughed, then sat down silently, his glittering figure drooping back in the wide armchair. Egmont and Hughes tried an endeavour to prevail on the rest of the company to disperse intoxicated and excited as most of them were, they yet retained sufficient wit to rouse a sense of their own foolishness. To more than one, the red wine running over the floor and table and staining each other's faces and garments became a prediction of the red blood that might be flowing soon. They well knew that Philip was as prodigal of blood as the Netherland nobles of their wine. The sobriety and slight awe that had come over the gathering with the entry and remonstrances of the three was heightened by one of those trivial incidents that highly affect overwrought minds. The sugar foundation of the elaborate and costly sweetmeat in the center of the table suddenly gave away. The heat had melted it, unperceived, and as its support flowed in sickly thick streams over the golden comfort of the stained cloth, the little figures of the confederates fell here and there mere crushed lumps of sweet and nothing remained of the gorgeous piece of triumphal confectionery but a sticky discolored mess men of sugar men of sugar muttered the admiral so shall this company melt away the ugly omen was noticed by several in twos and threes they smoothened their disordered habits and departed only bread remained where he was wrapped in a sudden melancholy I shall die a poor soldier at the feet of Count Louis, he kept muttering then, capon and sausage on Friday. Who says I did eat it? Lies twenty feet down in his throat. Seeing the company was not dispersed, the three nobles took their leave, who stride accompanying them. They came out into the calm April night, which was moonless and full of sweetness. The stars lay entangled in little wisps of clouds, and underbreeze came fragrantly from the spring fields of Brabant. William glanced back at the brilliantly lit mansion behind them. There is a silly short prologue to a long, dull tragedy, he remarked. Tragedy? Echoed lamoral Egmont angrily. You speak always as if it were on disaster, Prince. William made no answer. They turned their horses' heads towards the Brabant Palace, where Margaret, frightened and angry, debated matters of heaven and earth with Vigilus and Barleymont. And of section 22